0: And here's the main point. God does not treat us according to what our sins deserve. And that should drive us to reflect the character of God toward others. The motive is that our new life in Christ can have a saving benefit for others. That's what should drive us as we know Christ in order to make him known. So the first point is this. Remember your former life before Christ. Okay, so we're focusing on verses 3 through 8 this morning. So look with me now at, at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So last week we focused our attention on, on Christian living in the world, in society, as we relate to unbelievers. And we observe that this doesn't mean, this this does not mean total avoidance, right? Total avoidance of the things in this world or even people, right? And it doesn't mean thoughtless immersion, okay? So it's two sides of the spectrum, total avoidance or thoughtless immersion. It doesn't mean that. Rather, we are to be in it. We're to be in the world, but not of it. We are to be obedient, gracious, kind with our words, display humility and courtesy toward unbelievers, Right? That's what we are to be as, as we live in society. And now Paul tells us why. We are to display Christ-like living toward unbelievers because we once lived in a similar way and God had mercy on us. When we remember our identity apart from Christ, our former way of life before Christ, then we can display the life of Christ God that's demanded of us as Christians towards our unbelieving friends, towards our co-workers, towards students, neighbors, governing officials, or anyone that we interact with. Verse 3, For we ourselves were once, and then he lists seven vices that characterize one's identity apart from Christ. We ourselves were once implies that this shouldn't be the way that we are characterized any longer. This serves to remind us that there should be a difference. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, there should be a difference between your former way of life and your new life in Christ and your current lifestyle. Now, we recognize that th- He's not talking about perfection here, but, but a new direction. A new aim, a new priority, a new life of the mercy of God, because of the mercy of God, which we'll see in verses 4 through 8. Right? What Paul is calling them to, and what they've just come out of, is this sort of lifestyle that, that characterized those in Crete, and the opponents in, in Crete. And Paul, but Paul here, identifies himself did you notice that? We ourselves once were. Paul identifies himself and Titus in this group of people who once were characterized by these vices. If Paul's life had continued in the way that it, it did prior to his encounter with Jesus in Acts 9 and his conversion on the road to Damascus, he would still be characterized by these vices in, verses, in verse 3. You might ask, how could Paul describe himself as someone in this list? Really, Sean? Here's someone who was zealous for God. Here was here is an Israelite. He was a Pharisee. Here's someone who says in Philippians 3, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But as he recounts his story in Galatians 1 and 1 Timothy 1, we read this, Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 1 Timothy 1.13, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief. Right? God has mercy on him, the chief of sinners. Paul acknowledges that this used to be his former way of life, and it used to be the former way of life for all of us apart from Jesus Christ. So seven traits, seven characteristics of our former way of life without Christ. Right? He's, not, he's not emphasizing here, all right, this is how unbelievers act. He's saying this was our identity. This was our identity apart from Jesus. So let's look at the list. He's describing these Cretan opponents as well. They were deceptive, divisive. They were defiled. They were detestable. They were disobedient. They were unfit for any good work. And, then, and so he's saying, this is what we were coming out of. So, so the first three terms, foolish, disobedient, led astray. So these first three re- have to deal with our relationship to God, and then the last four have to deal with our relationship to others. Okay, that's kind of how they're divided up here. So these first three terms, foolish, disobedient, led astray. So to be foolish means to lack understanding, behave senselessly, to display poor judgment. Disobedient refers to defying authority, to reject God's commands, to rebel. To be led astray involves being deceived or even deluded, like sheep who go astray, who wander after their own way. So in relation to God, an unbeliever, our former way of life, is ignorant of God, was ignorant of God, rebels and rejects God, and lives without a true knowledge of God. And then the next four describe sins against other people. Paul continues, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were once slaves to our various passions and pleasures. And this is this is the root of these other devices. James would say in James 4 What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And that's what we see here. We, we are characterized at one time by being slaves of our selfish, Worldly passions and pleasures and desires, and as a result, we pass our days in malice and envy. And those who are mean spirited, right, malicious, those who are envious, will be characterized by being hated and hating others. So, what Paul has described here in regard to our former way of life is one of ignorance of God and an active opposition toward God and others. It's it's, it's a focus on ourself, right? Ourself, I'm at the center. By nature, apart from Christ, this is who we are. So remember your former way of life that acted in ignorance and selfishness towards other people. We should not be surprised when ungodly Leaders in authority don't rule with justice and righteousness. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised if people speak hurtful things against us. And aren't, don't show courtesy towards us. We shouldn't be surprised. We once were characterized by that lifestyle. And by God's grace, we are making progress. So we should be kind and gracious and compassionate toward outsiders. And this can happen when we realize that God did not treat us according to what our sins deserve. My second point is this. Recognize the mercy of God in Christ. Notice verses four through seven. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is one long, packed sentence. Paul now contrasts the former way of life with what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We were ignorant of God. We followed our own passions and pleasures. We mistreated those who bore and bear God's image, for those who He created. But God saved us. God saved us when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. We've seen the appearing of the saving grace of God in sending Jesus back in chapter two, verse eleven. We look forward to the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in 2.14. And now, when the the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, in time, God's goodness and loving kindness appeared to us. God's character is one of kindness and love for people. And God took the initiative in saving us. Verse five, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. We are saved not by our works or our effort. We sang about this, didn't we? I love this song because it's saturated with Scripture. I quote it almost every time we sing it No list of sins I have not done, no list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. No work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot, I cannot cause my soul to live. We are saved not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We are not saved by our work, but Christ's finished work. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. There is nothing that you can do to earn God's salvation. It is a free gift of mercy and grace received by faith in Christ. We are saved according to the mercy of God. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Praise be to God. Why, Peter According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Paul highlights this in our text as well. That God saved us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, Sean, what does that mean? The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We are saved in accordance with God's grace, with God's mercy, through washing, by being cleansed from our sins by means of the Holy Spirit. It has two effects, two results, regeneration and renewal. This word regeneration refers to rebirth or new birth, born again is the term we may be familiar with. Have you ever thought about the birth of a child? I imagine you have. Before the child is born, they have no idea what's ahead of them. They have no idea what they are entering into, what they're being born into. You enter into a world that was there before you, it's life-changing. And the child doesn't have any say in the matter. Paul says... We are born again by the Spirit of God. And yet, this second birth, this spiritual birth, is different from the first. In the first birth, we enter a world marked by death and suffering. There's one guarantee There is one guarantee for the one who has been born into this world. There is one guarantee unless Christ returns, we will die. But the second birth, new life is not ended by death. Verse 7, Paul says here, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life does not end in death. Jesus, he spoke about this new birth in John 3 with Nicodemus. I'm sure you're familiar with it. This being born again is brought about by the Spirit of God. The wind blows where he pleases. So it is, everyone is born of the Spirit. According to God's mercy, we are washed, cleansed, having been born again by the Spirit. This is true for all who receive Jesus Christ and believe in his Name, we are born of God. This new birth came to you by the Holy Spirit. And Peter would actually add this in, in 1 Peter 1, through the living and abiding word of God. But Paul, Paul doesn't stop here, does he? It's not just salvation accomplishing a washing, right? Spiritual cleansing that affects a new birth. That's not the end. And we might think of that in terms of conversion. But it also includes a washing, a spiritual cleansing that affects a renewal by the Holy Spirit. Paul's emphasis here is not only what happened to you in the past in your conversion, right, washing of regeneration, being born again, but also the present reality of salvation, which is given by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's renewal, it's transformation of life that takes place through the Holy Spirit. Salvation not only accomplishes a washing that results in rebirth, but also a renewal by the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, 2, Paul says this, he commands us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Day. This is a work of the Spirit of God who gives life and transforms us and makes us more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We receive not only a new birth, but a changed life. And then in verse 7, Paul summarizes these truths with a different perspective. It's like a diamond He's going to look at salvation like a diamond from all different angles to, in order to see the full beauty of it. Paul uses almost every metaphor in Scripture to describe this great salvation that we have in Christ. I don't know if you observed this as we read this one sentence. He used a deliverance metaphor, right? Being rescued. He saved us. Deliverance. He used a renewal metaphor. We are regenerated and renewed. He used a legal metaphor. Verse 7, we are justified by his grace. We're declared to be in the right with God. And he concludes with a family, a kind of family metaphor. We are heirs. This is tied to our inheritance and being adopted into God's family to receive that which he has promised, eternal life. Salvation not only involves justification, being declared to be right with God by his grace, it also involves sanctification, progressively becoming more like Christ. And that's the emphasis here. So if you want to be motivated to live for Christ, recognize the mercy of God in Jesus Christ that you have received by faith. Display that same mercy and grace toward others who are undeserving. Reflect the character of God, his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his loving kindness toward others. Third and finally, fix your attention on living out your new life in Christ for the benefit of others. For the benefit of others. There's a missional evangelistic mindset to our new life in Christ. Look with me at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. As we consider this, this last verse in this section, I want to highlight several truths that we see here. First, Paul calls us a trustworthy saying. This was a common expression that he used in First and 2 Timothy as well. The trustworthy saying likely refers back to what he has just stated in verses 4 through 7. So it's highlighting the gospel. It's highlighting God's mercy in Christ. Second, Paul wants Titus to insist on these things. He wants Titus to stress the truth that is proclaimed in verses four through seven. And Paul, you you recall how he followed this pattern even back in 215. Right? Throughout this letter, we've seen this emphasis throughout the letter, there has been a focus on Christian living, right? Christian living in 2, 1 through 10, and how we live in church life. And then he grounded that in 2:11 through 14. And then three, one and two, more Christian living, right? Back in even chapter 1, 10 through sixteen, avoiding the false teachers and unChrist-like living. In chapter in two fifteen, and then in four through seven, we see this. In four through seven and two eleven through fourteen, we see how it, it, these truths are grounded in the gospel. In both of these instances, the verse that followed is a declaration of these truths. So look at, look at verse 15. 2.15. So 2.11-14, 2, through 14, he grounded it in the foundation for Christian living, the gospel. Verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And now in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Why? Why? Third observation. This shows the motive and the purpose on stressing the gospel in the life of the believer. Why should we emphasize the truths of the gospel? Why do I tell you guys all the time, I tell myself all the time, remind yourself of the gospel, Sean, Every morning when you wake up, remind yourself of the gospel. Why? The end of verse 8. So those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Why do we insist on proclaiming the gospel and the implications of it? Why Why do we spend time on that? It's so that those who are trusting in Jesus would set their minds on him and devote themselves to Christ-like living. And the kind of life that he calls us to live in verses one and two specifically. A life that displays mercy and compassion toward unbelievers. We are to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. He doesn't just say we are to devote ourselves to good works. Did you notice that? He says we are to be careful to. In other words, we are to pay careful attention to. We are to fix our attention on, set our minds on, give thought to some action or practice. The idea is this. Those of us who have believed in God are to fix our attention on being concerned with, devoted to, active in doing what is good. Not just a passive, I'm just going to do good, and just passive, we just passively do it. We are to understand our responsibility as followers of Christ, to think through practically how to live out the Christian life how to live out our faith and then actively do it. Those who trust in in God are called to active participation to what God would have us do. The last observation, and we'll conclude with this. The Christian life is not intended to merely be the outworking of our faith. I've emphasized this. It's not just about me and my relationship with God. Which is why we don't do total avoidance in living out the Christian life. It's not just about me and my relationship with God. It has implications for those around us. The end of verse 8. These things, I think he's referring to these good works are excellent and profitable for people. And I take this word people to refer to the same group of people in verse 2. Some translations, your translation might say, for everyone. It's excellent and profitable for everyone. So it's not just good and profitable for ourselves. right? Living out the Christian life isn't just good for me or those in the church. But specifically, outsiders or unbelievers. Doing good things, those things which are commanded by God in obedience, with right motive, and in faith, are excellent and profitable for people. Paul is highlighting the beauty and attractiveness that is observable by others when Christians focus on doing good in society. It is profitable. It's useful, it's beneficial for people, for unbelievers and believers. Jesus would say in his Sermon on the Mount, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds, and what? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that's the hope of this passage as well. By living out the Christian life and striving to do what is good and honorable, the gospel becomes attractive to outsiders. It serves for their good. There is to be an intentional evangelistic mindset where our good works pave the way for others to see the beauty of the gospel. The motivation for Christian living not only looks back to on the mercy that we have received in Christ, but it looks forward to the the hope of God's mercy reaching others for Christ. Let's be a church that displays kindness and mercy by doing what is good because of the kindness and mercy that we have received in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the gospel. We are thankful for the mercy and grace that we have received in Jesus Christ. We're reminded of our former way of life and know that that path would have continued had it not been for your mercy. So we give you thanks for that this morning. Would you help us remember those truths and insist on declaring them, believing them, so that we might be careful to devote ourselves to doing what is good towards those around us so that the mercy that we have received would then be lavished on others as we display your mercy and grace to others. So would you use us as agents of transformation in our world? Would we proclaim your greatness and worth? In Jesus' name, amen.